right, so today we have our first guest for our Helix and Gene podcast, Dr. Gary Gesselter. This is a very, very special podcast to me because Gary is not just a world-renowned surgeon who is excellent at what he does. He's also one of my true, dear, close friends, literally like family to me. So there's no better person or way to start off and kick off this Helix and Gene podcast. Um, I'm Sam Baluch uh, with Helix and Gene, and I'll let John introduce himself. Yeah, I'm John DeLimpio, also with Helix and Gene. And John and I are going to kind of go back and forth a little bit and uh, really discuss a lot of topics inside the medical wellness field and the fitness and nutrition field and really try to tackle what makes the bridge between fitness and nutrition and the medical field kind of close that gap closer and closer together. Where is that gray space between the black and white? Um, and I think there's a lot of good topics here that we can discuss. But first of all, I just wanna, you know, just say hello to Gary, welcome. Yeah, thank you very much, Sam. I'm, I'm most flattered to be a part of your inaugural podcast. Uh, it's been a wonderful journey that we've shared for the past 25 years. And uh, I'm glad to talk about things that I'm passionate about and that we have become passionate about together. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, what's amazing is Gary and I have known each other for 20 years. He's literally seen me grow up as a kid almost <laughs> from, a, from a young, young, you know, 20-year-old uh, boy to, you know, now having my own family, my own businesses, my own wife and children. So we've shared a lot together you know, over the years. What struck me uh, in the beginning is you say you're a kid, but what I recognized in you is that there's an old soul in a young and extremely strong body. Right? <laughs> uh, Thank you. I, I regard my wife Jackie as an unbelievably disciplined person, but she takes her hat off to you in your ability to to identify your goals and then execute, and that's part of you know the whole life and fitness journey. So, so this is where we kind of have our synergies, and it's and it's a it's an unspoken kind of relationship, and and that's important not just between trainer and trainee, uh, but between between life experiences and. And relationships and, and I think you know fitness health longevity uh, what I have begun to think of as not so much lifespan but health span and we'll talk about that later so um, you know these are all great topics that we'll get into yeah I mean I, you know let's start right there because I love that Life, lifespan yeah. and health span I mean that's a phenomenal distinction between the two and I think it's a topic where a lot of people who get into exercise and, and, and nutrition go, why is this gonna make me live longer? You know? Well what if it makes you live better? <laughs> you know, and, and, and you know, can you elaborate a little bit on what you mean by those two and, and what that means to you? Sure. So so uh, let's kind of start at the beginning, right? So um, I grew up in South Africa and one of the things I learned from my father who was also a physician was that you have to be consistent about exercise. And, and almost to this day, on Tuesdays, Thursdays, Saturdays, and Sundays, my father would hit the road. And the only reason he didn't do it seven days a week was that the Monday, Wednesday, and Friday was the days he was in the operating room and had to get up early. So I grew up watching my father wake up at 5.30 in the morning and, and, and go to work. So not only did I 
adopt his his uh, his professional sort of inheritance and become a doctor, but but the exercise piece also rubbed off onto me, and uh, and very early on um, in my in my twenties, uh, wanted to get involved in endurance running, and so I started running first half marathons and then marathons, and then I did a couple of ultra marathons, which are thirty two and fifty miles. Uh, and what I saw with that was it took a lot of commitment, sometimes having to run twice a day. But what I also noticed is that if you only run, like my father only ran, not being able to uh, embark on resistance training and, and, and muscle uh, uh, fitness, rapid twitch stuff, uh, there, was, there were prices to pay. And he has had terrible terrible back problems because of a lifetime of running and not doing anything in the form of cross training. So, mm. so in that I've seen a person who was an exercise fanatic in a, mod in a moderate kind of way, never wanted to win races, never competed, just ran for his own health. But somebody who didn't understand the need for cross training lead to, to somebody who he's now 88, but is very frail because of the wear and tear in, imposed by running alone. So when I came to America and I came in 1993, I recognized firstly that America is a very dangerous place in terms of diet. <laughs> yeah. uh, my first foray was, I was, it was like a, like a kid uh, let loose in a candy store and, and I supersized everything. And I think in my first couple of years in, in the States, I gained 20 pounds. Wow. And, and it was scary. And, and even Jackie gained weight you know, in a person who's a natural ectomorph. Right. So And Jackie, his wife, is as lean as they come, runs like a gazelle. I mean, it's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, she runs faster than she walks faster than I can I, run. I, and he's not kidding. She yeah. literally walks faster than him and I can run. It's yes. it's <laughs> unbelievable. Yes. And and I even struggle to convince her that she has to you know embark on proper resistance training. She has a tendency uh, to round her shoulders and and you and I know that yeah. we've tried to and if she doesn't want to do something sure. even good science is like <laughs> yeah. it's like it's like it's like trying to pull a locomotive against its own, its yeah. own weight so uh, you know how did you discover that resistance training was so important did you see your father starting to wear down a bit and you were like huh I don't know like I need to do something else besides just run again John an interesting an interesting yeah. story um I was when I came and I realized that I could run and even in America I go running and one day I was pulling a suitcase off a bed uh, in San Diego and suddenly I had the most unbelievable lower back pain mm. and what it was subsequently shown was that I had a spondylolisthesis of my L5 and S1 and what that is is your L5 and S1 your your last lumbar vertebra sits on the sacrum at an angle sort of tilted forward part of the lumbar lordosis and from long distance running they think that my facet joints which kind of hold the the above and below vertebrae in place had disappeared mm. and with that that sudden pulling movement pushed the the lower lumbar vertebrae the l5 off yep. its axis with the with the sacrum wow. and that was intensely painful 
Uh, I remember having to fly back from San Diego to New York. By the way, sorry to interrupt. Yes. For those who don't understand the technicalities of that, <laughs> it's a small slip disk. <laughs> yeah, it's, well, the, yeah. Disc, the, the disc is in between the vertebrae. Yeah. This is the vertebrae slipping. The, the actual vertebrae. The actual oh, vertebrae. Wow. Okay, slipping. so yes. that's actually much worse. So it was, it was much worse, and it's yeah. graded. It was a grade one slip. You feel it when it first happens, and it, it sends your muscles into enormous spasm. Yeah. So the consequence of that was... Uh, I had to sit facing backwards on the airplane. In other words, I sat on my knees. I couldn't put, <laughs> wow. couldn't put my butt in the seat. And for five and a half hours, I sat facing the poor dude behind me. <laughs> and, and I tried Were people to like looking around me like, what is this guy? I apologized and they, they then understood. And it was impossible to walk. So, so from there, I, I had to go and see an orthopedist, took an x-ray, told me what, what was wrong. I then uh, had physical therapy. And the physical therapist said, listen, this is not going to slip all the way and paralyze you by severing your spinal cord, but you have to strengthen your core to prevent this from getting worse. And this was, I think, 1995. So it was around that time that I joined a gym. Uh, at the time, it was Jack LaLanne, somewhere out east on mm -hmm. Long Island. And, <laughs> and it was kind of a, a, a kind of a dangerous place, and I didn't feel... Uh, I felt neither welcome nor comfortable there. So <laughs> it, it, it rapidly sort of petered out until I moved to Lake Success in 1998. So that's 21 years ago. And in 1998, uh, Lake Success had a little gym. Um, and Sam was one of a number of, of uh, uh, fitness instructors there. And, and our first real interaction was that he was not my fitness trainer, uh, but but I would show up uh, like three days a week and then not show up for, for a month. And I was playing cat and mouse with the trainer that I was working with at the time yeah. in that I would show up and he didn't and he showed up and I didn't. And one day Sam came up to me and said, hey dude, if you wanna really you know, get serious about your health, you gotta be consistent. And that was kind of the first conversation that I had with Sam. <laughs> and when I heard that it resonated and that's how our journey really began. Yeah, and you know, consistency is what I've been preaching my whole life, you know, in, in, in anything that you do, you know, small increments done over a period of time equals success. And you have to continuously, just repetitively be in the game, be in the conversation. And that you took those words and, you know, being the intense man of action that you are, you know, and, and you took it to heart and you literally, you really transformed yourself. I mean, you were chubby when I saw you. You know, and, and now, you know, um, 20 years later, you're in phenomenal shape. And, you know, you really took this fitness journey, not just from a working out standpoint, from a nutrition standpoint, which we'll get into in detail a little bit later. But, you know, just Gary's one of those people that took what I said right to heart, applied the action to it. And it's incredible what he's done with his physique. And not just what it looks like, but what he can actually do with it functionally, which is really, really good. So, so again, you know, one of the things that, that you teach and as part of not just your physical being, but your spirituality is, you know, your motto, and that is train your mind, Absolutely. change your body. Absolutely. And, and if you just look at anything, you know, when I watch you doing 15 of, 15 reps of something and and you just have to get it out there it's your brain that's saying I can do this I am not as good at that as you are 
uh, it's, a, it's part strength and part I'm satisfied with where I'm at. And I think as you age, you kind of start being grateful for the movement capacity and the strength capacity that you have. Yeah. And, and also this concern not to hurt yourself. So, th- you know, there's a lot to discuss uh, in terms of the different uh, expectations, goals, at different decades of your life. So, right, the, the, getting into that, the different decades of your life, right? So, I, you know, I've changed the way I work out every five years. And so have you, you know, because we've been on this journey together. And can you just talk a little bit about, you know, what you, where you started in terms of your first encounter of physical fitness training and then, you know, how it's evolved to where you are today, kind of. Like where you, you know, you started off with slow bench press movements. Now you stand on a stability ball, clean and pressing, clean and pressing you know, dumbbells. So, <laughs> you know, talk a little bit about what that transition means to you and, and how it kind of evolved for you. Yeah, so, so there's... Obviously, as you sort of make your way through this journey, there are there are initial goals, um, and you'll hit them. You know, the first goal was to have a chest that was bigger than my waist, yeah. um, <laughs> and you were perfectly, uh, you know, you were a perfect specimen uh, as an example to try and set it, and something that I, <laughs> I I aspire to, knowing that my my phenotype will never allow me to accomplish that. Yeah. But, but I think with aging and realizing by looking at family and patients that that inflexibility does not have to be synonymous with the aging process. And so functional movement, um, muscle lengthening, uh, joint stability, you know, I have chronic injuries. We know that I have a, a, a right you know, flexor, arm flexor problem that, sure. that makes it difficult for me to curl. And, and, you know, I try and work around that and these things you learn with age. But, but I think functional training, I, I am fixated on balance. Yeah. Now, I know that, you know, you know, one of my hobbies is driving a race car. Yeah, which I really want to get into with you. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited <laughs> yeah. about this too. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and that is a whole, that's a whole different experience. We'll talk about that in a minute. But, but what you learn to do is you learn to, to feel uh, things in your butt in a car and that's all based upon lateral movement balance uh, keeping your your visual horizons correct so so you have to be in peak physical uh, performance and awareness that is not always sort of muscle bulk and volume yeah absolutely very well said so so kind of segue into that what you just said and you know gary is a not just a surgeon or a guy who's in great shape. He's also a really, really excellent race car driver. And and it's something that, you know, he's, I, as long as I've known him, he's been passionate about, you know, uh, sports cars and, 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 and not because he's the kind of guy who likes sports cars, but he actually enjoys the science of driving. And, and, and you know, and, and I admire that a ton. And, you know, one of the things that Gary and I really got into and in understanding was, the relationship between your balance and stability and physical fitness and heart rate and how that applies to your car race car driving and, and can you talk a little bit and elaborate a little bit about just a little bit about how you got into car racing and then just tell us you know how you relate fitness and wellness into your car racing and how it's helped you improve you know something that people think requires so much movement 
and yet you know you're relating it to an action where you're sitting still for a long period of time with very little movement. Yeah, so so it's kind of one of the the um, <clears throat> dichotomies uh, of of sort of sport perception. By that I mean uh, people think of a person who who runs a marathon or boxing. Um, you know, boxing uh, to me or, or cage fighting must must be one of the most demanding physical yeah, uh, exercises mm -hmm. because not only do you have to keep moving, you have to defend yourself and You're you getting have hit. to take yeah. a punch. Right? <laughs> yeah. So that, that I get. But then you, you look at what the pinnacle of racing is. It's Formula One racing and a Formula One Grand Prix combines an enormous number of obstacles. Firstly, you, uh, you are in a race car for two hours. Secondly, you are traveling at speeds that are in excess of 200 miles an hour. Thirdly, you are racing against people who are in similar vehicles or missiles, and you have to be situationally aware for the entire time. One slip can be fatal. And, and with that, you're dealing with G-forces that are sometimes seven times your body weight. And this is for two continuous hours. So the, the misperception that you're sitting in a car doing nothing couldn't be further from the truth. <laughs> Absolutely. And the amount of... And no air conditioning either. Yeah. <laughs> you're just... No. And, and God you know, forbid you got to yeah. go take a piss or something. I know. I mean, so, <laughs> oh so, and they talk about it. I mean, yeah. you know, race cars will sometimes piss in the car. Yeah. However, they... And one of the most amazing statistics is that, that Lewis Hamilton, who's now five-time world champion, when he's in America and people don't know who he is, they realize what he does is when he says at the end of a Grand Prix race, he's lost seven kilograms or 15 pounds and the guy weighs 140 pounds. So it just shows you how much you lose. There's not, there's not much opportunity. To so, so there is science right there in understanding how to take so much weight out of your body due to the mental increase of pure intensity and drop weight at a very rapid pace without any impact, any movement. That's, yeah. that's incredible. Like, well, like, people need to pay more attention to things like that. Yes, yeah, so when you say no movement, sure, but, but well, throughout your yes. car, <laughs> there's very little movement because yeah. you're strapped in yeah. your absolutely yeah. at one with this car. Yes. However, your isotonic contraction and from your core through the roof. your neck. What's your heart up. rate? I mean, so, so we experimented in this, and there's a lot for us to talk about in yeah. terms of using my heart rate as a barometer of strengths and weaknesses of my body, right? And yes. That's, that's a whole conversational podcast right there. But, but I will tell you that um, when we go to races, and a race weekend comprises usually of the Thursday being what we call test and tune. So you mm -hmm. have, on average, four sessions, like four half-hour half sessions, and because they're different race groups, sometimes four or five race groups, and I'm in group one, I go for half an hour, and then it goes two, three, four, five, and then it, it restarts, and you go, and, and you go four times. And, and once I, I went out in practice, I don't like to wear heart rate monitors in racing because uh, it's just one extra thing to, to think about on your yeah. body. <laughs> but I went out with a, with a, with a chest strap, and, and the, at the time a polar a race, a polar a watch, and and we recorded my heart rate and in that half hour session i burnt 1100 calories <laughs> um in in a in a car and just to put it in perspective formula one race cars are around 800 horsepower i race a car that has 110 horsepower 
but it's a single engine it's a single seat car it weighs with me in it 1100 pounds wow and it has enormous traction in other words it can go around corners really really fast um what i noticed right at the beginning was sitting waiting to go out <clears throat> my sympathetic system was so sort of mm. um uh, engaged that my resting heart rate was 140 sitting stationary before we even rolled out of the oh, pad. So the anxiety, anticipation, all of that gets your heart rate up. Sure. Uh, and then throughout that period of going around the track, my heart rate averaged about 160 and peaked sometimes at around 175. And, and knowing my own uh, cardiovascular physiology, I can get my heart rate, and as you know, I'm now 60, yeah. I can get my heart rate up into the mid 170s. Yeah. And then look at the recovery. So, so when you equate heart rate with calories burnt, that's how I burnt around 1,100 calories that's in half an hour. But if it started with me stationing a car, yeah. that speaks to the sympathetic overlay, the stimulation yeah. of your whole, your whole system. And, and what impact the brain has on your performance, your preparation. Uh, I mean, these, these are lessons that we can just you know, keep on talking about. Yeah, yeah. So in, in, in the, you know, so talk a little bit about how you feel that the stability and the flexibility and the power training has improved your racing. Like, like where do you see the direct relationship and improvement? Well, let's be honest. Um, the limitation that I have in racing is more about the fear of, of entering corners at at real speed mm. so so even though I'm good I'm far from sort of world-class he's um, by the way one of the most <laughs> modest over-accomplished people in the world let me tell you that right yeah, now. <laughs> except in racing <laughs> so I try hard uh, I work hard I've won a couple of races um, you know real real good races um, but but it's important and and the question you asked was how does flexibility and stability help with racing it helps not only with racing but with with me standing in an operating room table i've yeah. sometimes operated for eight yeah. hours at a time so you have to have that that mental endurance the physical endurance um that ability to focus forward so so the healthy mind and the healthy body is is is, an, is something that sits as the foundation of this of this platform yeah um uh Going back to the original thing that, that, that I opened up, uh, and that was sort of health span as opposed to lifespan. Yeah. So, and, and then the evolution of where we are from wanting to bench press, you know, for me, 250 would have been massive. I don't think I ever did that. Uh, but, but I can do 15 continuous uh, clean pull-ups, you know, uh, wide-arm pull-ups, which you taught me to do, and, and stuff that I can do, uh, I... I feel help me with with body motion with flexibility and what happens as you age is that that you're not as focused on on power and, and strength uh, compared to younger peers but you want to be in the top percentile for your age group yeah I think you want to focus on on flexibility stability uh, I enjoy playing golf, and I think that that golf and racing are very similar because because you have to have a stable platform, and then you have to have at times sort of an explosive yeah. action that you, you that <clears throat> is pre that that's preconceived when you're in the movement 
you cannot think about it. And it's, you know, responding to a ball in, in tennis or, or, or hockey, those are all things where you have to have, your body has to be able to respond to what your brain wants to do, sometimes in a deliberate way, but, but more often not in sport, in a, in a, in a reactive or reflex way. Uh, and all of these things help with, with improving reflexes. I have a question, uh, Gary. So as you've been talking about this, you have so many different varied interests but they're all sort of linked, and, and, and what, I, what I'm interested in is how do you get your mind focused? You often hear athletes or people, you know, uh, the term get in the zone, right? Yeah. I think, and that's such a key part of this, of what do you do even before surgery or before, you know, something high intensity, really, that you, that you know you have to be doing for a while at a, high, at a high level of performance. How do you zone in to that? So it's a multifaceted question mm. which is a multifaceted answer right so I think uh, there are days where you are in the zone and days where you cannot get in the zone so and that I think more than anything is probably preordained by the quality of your sleep mm. so I know that that when I'm racing um, or or there were days when I would be playing in a golf tournament and I would lie in bed awake thinking about the next day again the sympathetic overlay the, the, the anxiety associated with that actually diminishes the, the amount and quality of your sleep and the next day you have a fuzziness where it's really difficult to get into the zone. So brain I think, fog, yeah. 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 So, so sleep is absolutely the, the, the foundation of, of uh, being in the zone. And assuming, and again, there's a whole another conversation about the need for eight-hour sleep and why we need eight-hour sleep, uh, but but if all of that preparation has been done correctly, then kind of the the difference between sport and profession uh, allows me to recognize the difference between amateur athletes, professional athletes, and amateurism and and professionals like what I do. So so when it comes to surgery, my ability to perform really exists at a level that that even if I do not sleep well and I'm chronically sleep deprived, I can still function at a level that exceeds most other people doing the same thing. And if you look at professionals now, if we just look at the Formula One racing example, not only do these people have to do what we described and that is race for two hours, yeah. they also have to change time zones in the most haphazard way imaginable. In mm. other words, They'll be racing in 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 uh, uh, the Far East and then have to fly to Italy, sometimes five, six, seven, even eight hours away over a week. And we know that the jet lag is a yeah, terrible, yeah. a negative influence on your circadian rhythm and your peak performance. You know, if you look at when Olympic world records were broken, it was usually in the early afternoon, and that that is during the our peak performance so when our our wakeful uh, stimuli and and uh, um, uh, endocrine milieu what's circulating in our bloodstream together with our intrinsic circadian rhythm are both at a peak so so there's so much at play and when you really have to perform uh, at a level in which thousands of a second are important everything counts so to answer your question, in my professional capacity, when I get into that zone, I can function 
perfectly well. There are days when I'm doing laparoscopic surgery that I just see the way I handle the instruments, I see the way I handle the needle and thread, and, and people around me will say, wow, you know, you, you just one movement got it done. Um, whereas if I'm, if I'm not in the zone, it'll be one and a half movements, two movements. It doesn't do anything to affect what is happening to the patient, but at a professional level, I'm keeping it, I'm keeping it good. In amateur stuff, if I don't get a good night's sleep and, and, and I'm not sort of physically peaked, I, I, I suffer dreadfully. So just to touch up on that, because I really want to get into neurological training, and that's kind of something that you and I really share and you know we've, we've talked a lot about, and I think it's a huge step that a lot of people skip on. So we talk about train your mind and change your body, right? So you just said that when you know you have to perform in surgery, your mind is in a place where... It's actually, essentially, there's no fuck-ups. It is what it is. Whereas with racing, you even so allow your mind to understand that, you know, although it's very intense, although it's very serious, and, as, and I know you're somebody who takes it on with all the might in the world, no matter how much sleep you've had, you know, both things, because that's just who you are. But... You know, just that, I think, really speaks to the importance of understanding your mind and understanding how it works. And, you know, one of the things that you and I talk a lot about is, you know, being able to send proper signals from the brain to the muscle, right? Um, and, you know, being able to have a systematic way of neurologically kind of waking up the central nervous system to send these signals to the proper muscle so they can perform proper function. And, you know, one of the things that I really want to ask you is, you know, when it comes to having steady hands or, you know, when it comes to having, uh, you know, steady hands both on the wheel and, 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 and like you said, you know, I don't know what it means to what you say about one loop or one and a half loop, but I'm sure, you know, the ability to focus and having those steady hands has a lot to do with a lot of the neurological training that, you know, you've done yourself and, you know, and, and now understand and it almost like innately now you're able to just do it without having to actually think about it. Yeah, so, so those are the, the stages of learning and embedding things into your brain so you know the thing of uh, how you learn to drive a car you know and I, I don't remember the sequences but it's it's uh, you know you start off being consciously incapable uh, and then through the whole things you become unconsciously capable or unconsciously competent and so that's training and and some people believe there's no such thing as talent if you apply 10,000 hours to anything you, you're going sure. to be expert. Yeah, yeah, sure. And, and that's, uh, that's one piece of it. When you talk about preparing your mind, I really believe you are, you, you're an expert at that. I think that, that you, you meditate. Yeah. You can focus your brain. You can prepare the day in a way through meditation that allows you a much better opportunity to get into the zone than I do. I'm always a little bit behind it. So, so I, I don't get enough sleep, even though my kids are now really out of the house and my youngest daughter is getting married soon, but, but uh, uh, I am chronically sleep deprived. I wake up in the morning and, and again, after turning 60, as you know, it became a passion of mine to really start focusing on, on, on exercise. And so I wake up at 4.30 in the morning, I go to the gym 
and start work at six. So even if I'm doing half an hour, I'm doing something structured. Yeah. And 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 that's kind of my personal time. I meditate. I listen to interesting podcasts. I try not to watch all the nonsense on the news and kind of try and get my body into a focus. And it's really helping. It's kind of helping me sort of hone things and it allows me some some time to think about the day. But but I don't go through any conscious mental preparations for work. That's just been thousands of hours yeah. of training. Yeah. But what we do is I have these kind of sensory inputs uh, sessions where if I'm racing on a racetrack, I'll sit there with my eyes closed and, and imagine myself driving it because I'm trying to train my mind to catch up to where, you know, kids who, who learn to race uh, have, you know, what they call go-kart dads. Yeah. So, so these, these guys want their kids to, to be Formula One race car drivers. They, they take to go-kart tracks. They teach them how to race go-karts at, at five and six. And by, by 12, they're in real race cars. And by 20, they've, they've had 15 years of, of experience. Those people have that ingrained in them, right? So, so that mental preparation for them comes much more easily. So when you are in, in, in what I call the plasticity of your brain, you know, when you're, when you're a kid, you know, you know that, that if you take a, a child up to the age of 12 and teach them a new language, it's an instantaneous thing. Sure. The yeah. systems just help them integrate even complex uh, grammatical stuff very easily. But you take a 60-year-old brain and try to learn a new language, sure. it's like a sh- you know, it's the door's shut. So, so when you are in, in, your, in your, your lifespan and what you have to learn, obviously, is, is, is important. So going back to what you just said, you know, the importance of teaching your kid at a young age, you know, A, you learn that from your father by example, right? right. Like monkey see, monkey do. I always say, you know, I have a seven-year-old son and I can tell him something that I believe to the cows come home. But at the end of the day, he's only going to do what he sees me do, you know, and, and, and what I show him with action, you know, and, right. and you know, so... You know, going back to what you said, you said you came to the United States, you know, you supersized everything, you know, you gained 20 pounds and, you know, now we're, we were talking about the kids whose dads get them into go-karts at a young age, right? So in, in, in terms of making a connection between having such a, you know, problem in childhood obesity that eventually leads to adult obesity and a lot of these kids are overweight because their parents are overweight and you know you could make the circle of lack of education for the parents and understanding nutrition and that's kind of why we're here you know in creating this platform and the difference between that and you know the the kids who are taught at a young age to see their parents you know by example get in a race car and and perform and understand that kind of discipline as opposed to you know going down the block to mcdonald's and shoving their face with a you know happy meal that god knows what's in there you know so i I, so you know the issue i think that we have today you know in, in in getting into now this you know getting into the whole wellness aspect of what we do and, and, and the conversation now, you know, I think it stems and starts with the children and really is a direct reflection of their parents, right? And, you know, oftentimes with parents, you know, um, and I've dealt with kids with addiction, right, to drugs, and one of these biggest issues that we have. The biggest issues I see aren't really the kids. The biggest issues I see is the denial in the parents and the lack of knowledge in the parents to make a decision 
and how they enable their kids through what they think is love instead of actually you know having the proper tools and 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 teaching them the proper discipline to say hey you know what you can have one ice cream a week you can't have four a day because there's consequences to that you know but then the parent eats you know a tub of ice cream every night themselves and is 30 pounds overweight and now they expect the kid to understand this. So there's this huge disconnect in what we see here in, in, in this business and, and in what we do in, in, in our you know, wellness center and, and, and how we attack understanding the big issue at hand. You know? And I just want you to you know, talk a little bit about you know, where, where do you see that? Where do you see the issue? I mean, you came from South Africa where you, know, you were eating natural foods and things of that sort. And you come here and all of a sudden, like you said, supersize me, right? And, and where do we go from here? Like, how do we get these parents educated, get the kids educated to understand a better you know, just have a better plan. I just have a better platform that they can move forward with. Yeah, I mean, it's a very complex problem, right? So, so I think, you know, I try and look at it as there are thin parents who have fat kids, right? Yeah. And, and, and how do you handle that? So we like to think that being products of our parents, we adopt their phenotype, what they look like. So yeah. if, you, if your parents are tall, you're likely to be tall. If your parents are obese, you are likely to be obese. One of them is genetic and the other one is behavioral. Mm -hmm. And I think that that obese parents obviously have never focused on the importance of healthy nutrition. And if they're not focusing on that, there's no way that a child will be socialized into an environment where they're aware that you there are healthy ways of eating. And if you look, you know, having grown up in, in, in South Africa and you see different African tribes, there are, there are uh, diets that are indigenous to, to different peoples and, and kids will be weaned onto foods that they think are, you know, are delicious and if I had to put that in my mouth, I'd want to puke. Right. So, so where you develop and what you're taught to be part of your food likes are really fundamental to your, your lifetime of, of what you like. Fantastic point, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, you, you know, you just have to look at Indian kids. I mean, yeah. you know, an Indian child having a, a strong curry, to them, it's not a strong curry, it's tasteful. Right. Uh, you take an American kid who's used to buttery, uh, smooth kind of you know, <laughs> sure. sweet stuff yeah. and salty and put that in their mouth, they, they, they'll, they'll vomit. On fire, yeah. So, so, and you know, there are a lot of myths about that. You know, it's like, if I have spicy food, I'm going to get heartburn. Not okay. true, you know. Uh, it's not associated with any increased risk of peptic ulcer disease or, or, or gastritis or reflux or anything. So, so it's all about what a child sees and what they're acclimated to really right at the beginning of their lifespan. What I've seen and what you just said is that, and you said it right at the beginning, if a child is a product of parents who focus on, on proper eating habits, uh, they will do that. Sometimes portion control is, is different. Some kids are generically endomorphic as opposed to ectomorphic, meaning that they tend to be chubby rather than thin and sinewy. And that then it becomes the parent's attitude because when a parent sees the child, they're a little chubby. I've got two daughters. One is you know thin like Jackie. The other one has the propensity to be chubby like me, I think, or yeah. like, 
and yes. I see it in my parents as well. What you cannot do, and what what Jackie, my wife, is so good at, is not trying to discipline their child's eating habits, rather than stop them from eating or or, or not, or 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 creating an environment of chastisement or or sense of diminished self worth. She improves their self worth. She she takes them for a jog or a walk and spends time talking to them. Very, very important how you address a child who's on a path to weight gain. And, and you know, I, I think that's, that's a real issue. I think that's a really interesting point and an important point because I think that piggybacks on training philosophy as well and helping clients or patients get in shape and feel better about themselves. It's a really, it's a holistic approach rather than this cut and dry method, right, Sam? Absolutely, you yeah. know, I, and, and you know, one thing that, another thing that we share in common, my wife, Tanaz, is also a master at that with the kids in understanding how not to make it a conversation mm. in the house, you know, right. because, you know, I, look, I'm, I'm small, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm only 5'4", you know, I'm very muscular, but, you know, I weighed, 97 pounds and I was four foot two in seventh grade. My son is four foot two and is 90 pounds wow. and he's seven years old, okay? He's genetically a lot bigger than I've ever been. Now, this, he's not a fat kid, but he can sit down and he'll finish a 10 ounce steak, you know, wax the plate with mashed potatoes and 30 seconds later go, I'm starving, okay? And he's a kid who, you know, is, as you've seen, you know him, he's very physically, he's a lot stronger than most kids his age, you know? And I would give, I do this for a living and I sometimes catch myself talking to him about his weight because it's just that instructional, you know, mentality of me going, hey, son, you know, let's focus on these food groups instead of these food groups. And, and my wife, she's amazing at that because she'll stop me, pull me aside and go, uh-uh. You know, she'll like really push me aside and she'll, she'll take him outside. She'll get him, you know, engulfed in nature. She'll hand him a shovel and he starts digging and digging and digging and digging. And all of a sudden, you know, that nervous energy is gone because I think a lot of the kids eat like adults do based on that anxiety and nervous mm. energy, right? So they don't even know why they're taking up this food. Right. So if you give them that outlet and, and something that, that Jackie has done phenomenally with your children and also Tanaz, my wife, is really good at She's really is understands how to shift their conscious mind and not focus it and not have a conversation by making something significant when it really doesn't have to be. I think a lot of times with, you know, kids that are a little overweight, you're, you're, you hit it right on the head. You know, the parents make it such a conversation that the kids kind of just like, you know, they're not, our, our natural, you know, innate human traits are to rebel against our parents, right? I mean, we, we, we all have a little bit of that in us, right? So if we see our parents pushing us towards something, especially as we grow up, you know, we, we naturally kind of want to show them who's boss, right? So, and, and I think that's a huge psychological um, factor in that not making it a conversation and really just shifting the, the, the space, sort of say, for, for the child to right. succeed in. Right, so, so first, first thing is don't fixate on food. Right? Yeah. Second thing is make the, the healthy choices available. So 
you know, if you if you're going drive through for McDonald's and you and you're popping a Happy Meal in the back sure. seat, yeah, that's terrible, right? They could see it as a once in a while treat. I don't think it must deprive kids of some kind of fun foods, but I think that that they have to ad- adapt or adopt proper dietary choices that you have. I think kids tend when they're little tend to eat to replenish their their energy sources. I don't think they they're natural overeaters, and if they're going to be replenishing their, their their energy source, be with with healthy healthy food. So how you can influence it is teach them the palate of of a healthy diet. Um, uh, I think that combined with a parent embracing a child's physical activity, getting them involved in in, in sports, always then you know the go kart dad epitomizes the father who wants the the son to be passionate about something and it's often an exaggerated passion on the part of the parent yeah. which can turn the child off mm. so you've got to allow the child to develop their own passion One you can lead them to it yeah. do not force them into it and and these this competitiveness you know seeing the the sideline dad you know the same kind of thing those things are obviously you know things we have to caution against so teach your child to be physically active to have extracurricular sporting activities find out what they're passionate about and then just let them eat healthy foods. I think if we were if we were to teach the country those kind of principles, uh, and then sort of manage portion control, I don't know what it is about this country. It's just the availability of produce, the amount of food that we throw away, the 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 Costco mentality. With, uh, because I can buy cheaper in bulk, you buy fortunes of stuff, and you know if it's if it's oranges or, or tangerines, and you're able to finish the box. You know, you know, good on you. But if it's if it's potato chips, um, and and you're buying that kind of bulk, it's it's terrible for kids. So, so you know, we've got to be able to set a tone and a stage for for young people to to adopt sort of better eating choices. Um, and and you know, I've just come back from visiting my family in South Africa. Uh, you know, they sometimes go to the opposite extreme. I have two sisters who are both well below normal adult body weight um one one looks like she's probably under under 40 kilograms um, and she exercises frenetically uh, she just turned 50 my my middle sister julie is a dentist and and she is uh, um, a top performing athlete in the 50 to 60 age group she wins marathons um, and she is fixated on what she puts into her mouth. Uh, so in the morning, she will make herself a, a concoction, um, and that she'll she'll drink this combination of brown rice with protein shake, and it looks like a slurry. <laughs> you know, you look at it; it's absolutely awful. Yeah. It's nothing I'd ever put in my mouth. But that's after she's been to the gym for two hours, starting at four thirty in the morning. Then she goes to her practice and the work for the day, and does not eat a thing at night. Right. Yeah. So y- you got to see food fixation uh, is almost like an eating disorder, and and so like anything, the golden well, mean exactly and the balance. Do you think it has to do with uh, our fixation as a society on abundance? Um, I think you, you see in, in a lot of different sectors, not just the food sector, but there's a lot of things where bigger is better, and and I've traveled outside the country, and you don't see the quote unquote American supermarket outside of America where you walk down aisle by aisle by aisle and there's there's boxes and beautiful you know these 
giant cereal boxes and it, it, it almost looks like you walk into a toy store when you go into these supermarkets and I think we've drifted away from the small local market where you know you'll re you'll yeah. replenish good food weekly and like you said this Costco mentality where you're going to these big box retailers and you're, you're buying in bulk because it seems like you're getting some sort of value but do you see a shift happening at all because I'm sort of seeing um, a, a resurgence in a lot of things where there's like a craftsmanship element to it where people want that you know an artisan you know like a, a craft beer or an artisan made tool or something I think society is slightly shifting away and pulling pulling away from that abundant mentality what, what, what are your thoughts on that well uh, um, I'll tell you John that you're you're living in in, in a sort of urban uh, little yeah. urban myth right. here, right? right? So, so it's all true, you know. The right. internet and it's, you know where where you start being drawn down, you know, with artisan this and artisan mm -hmm. that. It's expensive, right? right? If you look at America, America right. outside of the plains, sort of bicoastal yeah. stuff is yeah. a poor country, mm -hmm. and poor, uh, cheap calories come in, you know, low glycemic uh, mm. carbohydrates, no, low glycemic index carbohydrates, um, and 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 just you know, bad exposure to what's important in in healthy living. So, so exactly what you say is that we are seeing people starting to focus on I'm gonna I'm gonna purchase what I'm gonna eat over the next two days. I will try one of the one of the healthier uh, decisions is to actually box your food and prepare your food. Something you know, uh, Sam has been preaching and, and been a, a proponent of for, for years. I mean, his ability to diet. When I say to diet, meaning to to eat clean, um, with the occasional binge again, not a fixated kind of thing. Um, preparing your own food, thinking about what you're going to eat, you know, like anything. When you put your mind to something, and then you learn to make that part of a lifestyle, that's it. I think where America as a country is failing, is is that they are not sort of teaching children in their earliest formative life. To make healthy healthy eating choices, both in, in in quality and quantity of food, and and that starts, you know, obviously at the parental level. But we have to think that generationally, over a twenty five year period, the kids who are going to be parents in the next de decade really need to have some kind of educational input to say, let's change the the palate of the American child. Do you think it's because of a lack of choice, or is it is it a price? I think, I think it's a combination, but you know, I think this, this is a great little segue to, you know, understanding the American Dietetic Association, right? Like, I think there lies the problem, eh? you know, in, in that what the food chart actually mm. represents and, you know, what it's done. And you can get into the politics of, you know, the big companies have been paying off people for yeah. years and years. And we all know these things exist, obviously, all the poop is in the pudding and Anybody can go look it up now and get this information. But, you know, one of like my passions in when we created this Helix and Gene and, and this whole medical weight loss and wellness center in what we do was to educate the people against what's out there, right? So, you know, it, it's like the old philosophy, right? Like the stock market. When everyone's selling, you should be buying, right? So when you look at the whole view as a whole it obviously if the statistics show that one out of four americans is obese okay and two out of four americans is overweight 
we're obviously not doing something right here. I mean, it, mm. it's not, the, you know, numbers don't lie. So when you look at the philosophical way of how we look at nutrition and how we've looked at nutrition and how we label nutrition behind one of these boxes that has God knows what in there and how we regulate what's inside this box and what, you know, God knows what's in there. So I, I think that it, it's, yes, it's price. Yes, you know, it's, it's, it's. But it all comes down to, I think, the overall philosophy and lack of education. Like if we were to implement as a society a new avenue of eating, you know, so much money is spent year in and year out with insurance companies and these things on fixing, you know, the issue instead of looking at the root of it and going, how do we educate from the bottom? And if you focus on that and understand how to take this, you know, chart that we've used for years that just doesn't work and, and, and apply, you know, different avenues to it by educating people, you know, I, I think that's how we can actually make a little transformation here. And I think more and more, you know, people like us are getting a voice out there. And I think in due time, you know, I'm, my wife calls me a hopeless optimist because she's like, you just see the positive in things. But for me, you know, I have to think that way because I have to think that as a society over the next 20 years, you know, if we continue to go down this path, I mean, we're fucked. So, you know, and, and one can argue we're fucked now. But, you know, it, I think if you, it, you, there's enough education now and enough information now and enough medical scientific data, which is something we're working on, to show these changes if you don't follow the traditional plan and you actually start to understand, oh, there is, there is all of these new things that we're finding out, which by the way are not so new. They've been around for thousands of years that we're just starting to look into. That actually if you apply these tiny little changes over a period of time into what you're doing, you know, you can really shift your way of eating. Like take the simple sugars out of your kid's diet, you know? And something, you know, you alluded to in the beginning, right? It's a, it's, the, the kid in Africa that eats whatever it is that he eats and thinks it's delicious, right? Well, it's like when you said with the, when I used to do competitive bodybuilding, right? Like nobody likes to eat dry white fish, eight ounces of it with asparagus, dry with nothing on it for eight straight weeks, seven times a day while, you know, doing an hour on the Stairmaster and training your ass off in the gym feeling like absolute shit, but turning your body into what is, would be like a Greek God, right? So, but it's, it's understanding though, how to shift that mindset to say, okay, this is fuel. Like I remember I would sit there and I would be eating my, and I hate whitefish. I can't stand it. I would sit there and I'm eating this for the, in the in six weeks, you know, into it. And all I think to myself in, internally, I'm like, so good as I'm eating this. And I literally would put myself in a zone where I'm like, I'm eating chocolate cake. What are you eating later today? I'm eating chocolate cake. People would be like, what do you mean you're eating chocolate cake? But I had gotten myself so engulfed mentally to you know understand that food was a fuel source instead of a false sense of happiness. 
okay? And, 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 and you know, and when you, I think, you know, look at us as a society, I think the American Dietetic Association is just teaching us all the wrong things and it's time for us to take a deeper look. And from a, from, from a doctor's standpoint who understands these things, what is your take on that? Uh, I don't know what the ADA teaches. Uh, I mean, I'm not a disciple of the American Dietetics Association. Um, I do know that the most popular food in America is pizza, right? Yeah. So when that is the most popular food and, and, and it's relatively cheap, a 99 cent slice, yeah. um, you know, that, that says it right there. Yeah, pizza and candy, it's, it, soda. Yeah, yeah, it's not, you know, pizza and Coke. And, yeah. and that's become kind of almost the American staple. It's the soul food, it's the go-to stuff. Um, I can tell you in Italy, it's not the most popular food, <laughs> right. you know, right. where it's a, a supposedly derived. So, and it's amazing. You don't see fat people when you walk around Italy now. No, you know? I mean, you don't see fat people anywhere as, as ubiquitously as you see. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and that has spawned this, this industry of bariatric surgery. I mean, you and I have met one of the most successful surgeons in the country, yeah. and all he does is cut people's stomachs in half. Yeah. Uh, because once they've been stuffing themselves to the point that, that they're morbidly obese, they want the quick fix to be able to be thin again. And that is going to be very unsatisfying because the one thing that they derive pleasure from is eating. So obesity is at a spectrum of what I think of as, as, as mental illness. Right? Yes, something, I agree. It, it's exactly the same as people who have a healthy lifestyle. Uh, you were talking about eating to, to prepare for, for a show. That is an exaggerated environment. Yes, absolutely. It's an unsustainable sure. thing. Absolutely. That at the yes. end of that, you know, and then, you know, after that, you had to shred, you had to dehydrate yourself, you had to be absolutely peak. You are, you are on a scale, um, uh, on, a, on a trajectory to get perfect for one day. After that, it's different. Right. So That's what right. we're looking at is, is what is the lifestyle changes that we need to, to embark upon as a society that allows us to, to enjoy pizza once in a while as a treat, as opposed to a go-to food on a daily or, or, or every other day kind of basis. So, so America is pretty screwed uh, when it comes to eating choices and, and availability of food. Um, you know, John spoke about kind of the, the artisanal food stuff and that's very trendy. Uh, it's not inexpensive. Um, you know, we talk about Whole Foods and, and, and in the hospital, there's a Whole Foods right next door to St. Francis Hospital and the nurses call it Whole Paychecks. You know, <laughs> and by the way, so but really, but, but one of the things too about Whole Foods, like, and, and I know a lot of guys out there and they're starting to talk more about this is since Amazon took over Whole Foods, they really are changing the culture of Whole Foods. I wouldn't know, I've never been in there. You know, yeah, and, and, and it's it's no longer, I think, you know, what it used to be either. And it's actually turning because it needs to now compete with Costco. And and it's 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 losing even that, you know, when Whole Foods first started, it was, yes, it was expensive, but it actually had good, natural, a lot of decent things in it, which is fading really, really fast now. I always and, wonder. And, and, and yeah, yeah and, and because again, you know, it's just about the bottom line. It's about the dollar, you know, and, and you're going to see Whole Foods get cheaper and cheaper, you know, and, and I don't know, again, I don't really have the answer to this, you know, but, you know, I, I, I do see the problem and I think everybody sees it. And 
Well, it's about that sustainability when a company gets so big and so when 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 Amazon buys you out, yeah, and Whole Foods is becoming really it's it's a household name now. Whole, yeah, I mean everyone knows Whole Foods, and it. I I often wondered how can a, a company that large produce organic, really good food, and like you you hate to see them start cutting corners, you know. I think because of the bottom you're, line, you're you're gonna get there, and I think you're seeing it now. You know, and I think, you know, I, I, look, I, again, it, it all comes back down, I think, to education. You know, I think it all comes back down to understanding and teaching and having programs. Like, you know, we, we talk so much about, you know, uh, we talk so much about, okay, you know, uh, we need to eat this and we need to eat that, you know, but at the same time, you know, we really, we really fail to educate our youth and teach them, you know, what it is that, you know, what it is that they actually need to think about before putting something in their mouth. Um, and and, and that's, a, that's a loaded gun topic. But one other thing I really want to touch base with you on, Gary, before, you know, we, we put an end to this podcast is I really want to talk about the effects of hormones, okay? And I, this is a subject that I think is so important. And I think it's so underutilized, and it's 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 something that you know we as a society don't pay as much attention to, you know, and you know both from a standpoint of how it affects both adults and kids, you know, mentally and all of these disorders that are now popping up. Um, I also I, I really truly believe you know a lot of it has to do with imbalanced hormones and you know a lot of the issues that we have as adults and I think that it has to do with imbalanced hormones both that affect us psychologically to make bad physical choices and vice versa. Um, what's your take on you know the effect of and being somebody who knows the inside of the body right I mean, and really understanding how hormones affect the way we think the way we eat the way we are as as a as a person you know can you just talk a little bit about where you are on that what your take is and what you've experienced yeah so um, this is a massive topic um, and I know what the inside of the body looks like I'm not as good at knowing what the inside of the body functions like. So, so just to go through some fundamentals of sort of the endocrine or the hormonal system, uh, we know that men and women are different, and the fundamental difference between men and women is that men have testosterone in abundance, whereas women have estrogen in abundance. Right. Um, men and women both have the opposite. So men do have some estrogen, and women do have some testosterone, and and that balance obviously. Um, uh, these that hormone environment dictates your physical as well as your emotional sort of stance in life. Um, it doesn't dictate your your sexuality, but it dictates how you how you view the outside world. We see that obviously during the the uh, hormone growth spurt uh, in puberty, as kids start developing secondary sex characteristics, breast buds and pubic hair and that sort of stuff, and you see kids turning into, into adult women and adult men. Uh, we know that obviously estrogen uh, is responsible for most of the things that, that uh, uh, involved in, in the female reproductive system and in preparing for, for, for parenting or, or motherhood. And 
and testosterone is the strength hormone. There's no question that men are stronger than women because they, they are bathed in, in testosterone. Uh, we know that with aging, testosterone diminishes. Uh, obviously, testosterone is produced in the testicles. Um, and, and it is a growth factor that is fundamental to, to muscle growth, uh, fundamental to, to your emotional sort of masculinity. We know that men who abuse uh, testosterone or androgen androgenous steroids uh, tend to be aggressive, and yeah. you see what that does. Um, and, and I would love to be able to participate in some form of muscle building hormone supplementation that does it without, without the, the associated side effects, both emotional um, and potential uh, growth factors with regard to cancers and, and, other, and other issues. So, so, you know, that, that kind of sets the, the, the tone for, for estrogenicity in women when they reach menopause, obviously the estrogen disappears uh, or it converts from, from reproductive estrogen to, to estrogen of old age. Um, and, and with that comes muscle loss and loss of bone density in women. Men uh, start, they say that you start developing sarcopenia or, or muscle, muscle wasting. wasting. Yeah. Sarcopenia is actual loss of, of muscle fibers, whereas muscle wasting is, is a consequence of, of non-use. Non yeah. So if we talk about a person who's paralyzed in which the nerve coming from the brain doesn't get to the muscle, that muscle doesn't have the, the stimulus to contract, the muscle virtually disappears. Whereas sarcopenia is, the, is what happens in aging, and, and we believe that it has something to do with probable uh, testosterone effect on, on mitochondria, which are the powerhouses of the muscle. And you know, there's, there's a lot to be said about that. So, so the hormone environment, obviously growth hormone, uh, which is which is present throughout life and has an on and an off switch. So there's somatomedin, which is the growth hormone that stimulates growth, and the somatostatin, which is the thing that turns it off. And the balance starts you know, switching directions as you age. And I'm very focused on, on anti-aging. We spoke about health Yeah, well, that's kind of what I want to get to real quick. Yeah. You know, is, is the anti-aging aspect. You know, is, the, is the proper utilization of science medicinal therapy for hormones for you know dealing with all sorts of issues as we age you know i mean look my body at the age of 39 does not function the same way as it did at the age of 30 and it won't at 45 and it won't at 50. not and necessarily true sam i think that so so here's science well, so, yes, yes not so, necessarily i yeah. but generally speaking yeah but you and you, you talk about you or yourself in the first person so just to touch on that, and this is kind of the inspirational piece of this, right? Um, uh, the, con the, the consensus or the generally accepted concept is that as you age, so your muscle bulk diminishes probably like 10% right, per just an decade or something. that people do. And that can be prevented by a lifetime of exercise, whether it's resistance or, or, uh, or, or aerobic exercise or combination of the two, which is the best. Right now, you know, we 
we do not know what the dose of testosterone should be. We're not sure what exogenous things sure. we can put into our body to help us with anti-aging. But we do know that it all starts with exercise. Yeah. And there was there, there, a recent uh, study that was published, uh, I think, in the Journal of Physiology. Um, uh, applied Physiology, in which they, they identified a, a new group of patients that are being understudied in people. And those are people that they describe as uh, lifelong exercises, LLEs. And the definition of that, I think, is 50 years of exercise. Wow. So they identified people in their mid-70s yeah. who started exercising when they were in their 20s. Yeah. And, and, and these people, and you can tell them apart from others because they, they've always done something. And, and there's, you know, even you and I know that, that not a month has gone by in the past 20 years that I didn't do something, even when I was sure. sick. Yeah. You had to do something. And these people are like that. And they, there's a recent study, I think, out of Ball State University where they actually biopsied the muscles of, life, uh, of lifelong exercises mm -hmm. and, compared them these, and compared them to healthy 25-year-olds uh, in terms of the, the mitochondrial and the, the hormone environment of the, of the muscle fibers, and they couldn't tell them apart. Yeah, that's fascinating. That's yeah, fascinating. They couldn't tell them apart. And, and so you do not have to resign yourself to the fact that there is sarcopenia in your future. Um, and you in particular, who has always been physical, you know, and, and me in trying to, to do that unwittingly, you know, I, I still want to grow. I still want my muscles yeah, to sure. be bigger. And, and, and you can. I just have a question as well. I, I think some of our listeners might be listening in and saying, oh my God, if I don't start early, I'm done. Is there anything that you can do later on in your life to make yourself feel better and make yourself fit and, and well? It's never too late. It's never too late exactly. to start. Never too late, never too late exactly to start. Exactly right. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, the use it or lose it thing doesn't apply yeah. to this. So, I agree, yeah. Absolutely. So, <clears throat> and, and, you know, the problem is, and, and why the flexibility is so important, is the problem is that if you don't do it or you haven't done it until you're 70 or 60, and your muscles are contracted, they are not used to stretching, their ability to, to grow and obviously uh, regenerate. So, so, you know, as, as Frank, as, um, as Sam will teach, um, you, you, as you uh, induce lactic acid in your muscles and you injure the muscle, the ability to repair is what initiates growth and that's yeah, kind of correct. reflex growth. And if you don't have the ability to generate that, that lactic acid in the muscles, uh, it's going to be harder. And, and it speaks to exactly what we're trying to achieve in Helix and Gene, and that yeah. is take people who cannot conceive what it's like to yeah. live a healthy lifestyle to say, let's create what I've now just been thinking of as what aspirational training, right? Yeah. You, you, know, you don't want to sit there and, and watch uh, a, a TV uh, program or, a, or a, a, a DVD that you receive in the mail that shows people jumping up and down and doing stuff when you cannot get out of a chair. But if you can say my goals moving forward are to be able to curl 10 pounds on each side 15 times times three times three sets and then next week we'll, we'll, we'll stretch that a little bit, that kind of let's get you started on something uh, is a very important way to not over overwhelm a person so 
So yeah, so I mean, you hit that right on the head, right? It's all about teaching the person progression and what's realistic for them at, at this point. And, you know, it's, uh, look, we, we all know, everybody's body develops at a different pace. And, you know, and again, it all stems back down to the education of the person understanding, you know, if you're 400 pounds and you can't move, you know, minor changes in your diet and minor changes in your just sitting down in your Drastic. seat, you know, of uh, yeah. um, getting your arms up and down 50 times or 20 times every single day will make, will give you drastic changes done over a two week period. And, and that is what becomes motivating. And, and that what kind of what, you know, triggers the mind to say, okay, well I can do this. And you start to build confidence, right? Because at the end of the day, people who are overweight lack a aspect of confidence within themselves to say, I can do this, right? And, and it's, it, it becomes this, you know, this, this snowball going downward. Somebody walks in through the door and tells us, I have 100 pounds to lose. I go, no, you don't. You have five pounds to lose. Yep. And when you learn how to lose five pounds, you duplicate that formula and now you've lost 10. And when you've lost 10 pounds, we look and see what we did that you lost those 10 exactly. pounds in. And then we repeat that and get exactly. it to 20 pounds. Exactly. And before you know it, you've now built this brick-like foundation for your home to be able to withstand any storm. And, and you know, it, it's about starting with those very, very small pieces and really teaching the people, this is not as hard as you think it is. It's just about, you know, taking that initial step. Yeah, well, well you know, what, what this is gonna be is, is creating the life coach, right? So the first step, is that you have to acknowledge that you need to change what you're doing. Yes. The second step is finding somebody who resonates with you. Yes. And the third thing, the requirement is that when you are a life coach to recognize how to invigorate and motivate the person. So, so you know, what you're talking right at the beginning and it just, the, you know, what resonated with me is that there has to be uh, a commitment in perpetuity. 100%. Right? Yeah. And, and then you set the example. It was not, you know, you showed up every day, you, you were doing what you were doing, and then I was emulating that. It's the, it's the same thing. A coach is somebody to try and emulate. A parent is a coach in the same kind of way. So, so we have a lot of jobs to do. Yeah. And, and I've not always been the best coach, and I've not always been the best parent. Yeah, sure. You know, yeah. uh, it's life. But, yeah. but, but in general, the kind of how you behave and how you. Uh, how you set an example to your kids, to your clients, to your patients, you know, and, and you become a transparent sort of vehicle of goodness, I think. Well, that, you know, you hit it on the head, and one of the things that we so focused on with Helix and Gene in, in our program that I think is just, you know, it, it, it separates us apart is, you know, in 20 years of doing this, you know, the thing that I realized most is that, you know, Weight loss and weight gain is weight gain is, is is an issue like an addiction, like 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 alcohol or drugs, right? So if somebody's addicted to alcohol or drugs, they go to rehab, they get a sponsor, they get a coach, they get somebody who's on top of them on a daily basis. So one of the main things that we created was, you know, aside from yes, you have to have a great system. It has to scientifically work. It has to those those things have to be there, right? But you know what? gets the person when they step out of your door to comply, 
right? How do you hold them to account, right? So, you know, it was, it was, it was a no-brainer in understanding, okay, you get assigned a fitness coach and you get assigned a nutrition coach. And these coaches, every single day, are on top of you, in touch with you, and, and, and you know, constantly encouraging you, reminding you, talking to you, and forming this, you know, this, this intimate community within yourself and them to let you know, okay, you're not alone. And that really starts that mental transformation process. I think the real way to actually teach people to lose weight is to, you know, hold their hand. You have to teach them and, and let them know they have the support. And in time, they gain the confidence and, and their ability to go out on their own and make the right choices just gets that much stronger. Well, you know, so, so when I look at my behavior, so there's certain things which obviously are negative impactors in, in behavior. One of them are distractions. So, you know, so you're focused on this and, and you want to eat well and you want to exercise every day and, and you're committed to that. And then something bubbles, right? Whether it's an illness or somebody, you know, some interpersonal conflict or trouble at work or financial issues, those kind of impactors kind of distract you from, from that piece of it. And again, you know, I said earlier, uh, creating an environment in your brain that it is second nature, it's part of what is your being, right? And, and, and when you're young and it's, and it's how you brought up in your household, being of that kind of uh, mindset that becomes a natural part of who you are. When you're in middle life uh, and you look back and say, wow, I didn't take, uh, you know, make the best eating choices, I didn't do the best in terms of looking after my, my physique, and now I've got to start working on that. Anything that interferes with that sets you back. So, so sure. you really, and when people go to AA, I gather with a sponsor, whenever they have that urge to think about drinking or, 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 or abusing, they call that person. So that, that trigger, I'm, I'm thinking about it, I must call that number. Yeah. You have to create that environment. Yeah, and that's what we're doing. These people. Yeah. And, and they're going to know that that's accessible yeah. 24 7. Yeah, yeah, and, and, that, and, and that's what we're doing. And, and that's the only way you're going to get this to work. Yeah, so, so, and that, we're looking at it now as I talk and I think about it. These are people who are, who are pathological eaters, right? These mm -hmm. are people who are almost like addictive eaters. Absolutely. But then there's the rest of us who just enjoy eating and just do not know how to control our, ourselves. Yes. That has to, there has to be sort of the middle ground where you're not, you know, you're not feeling like I'm about to make a terrible choice. You just want to be more smooth. In, in how spectrum like anything yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's finding that balance yeah. you know yes. and, and, and it's part of that process yeah. so great I mean we, we, we covered a ton here today it's um, a good start yeah good it's start. a great, great start, start. Yeah. and you know I can't wait to have you back again to do this again um, the only I just want to you know if you know if somebody wants to reach you for your profession or what you do you know where do they go how can somebody you know get in touch with you how can you know uh, you know if somebody by the way Gary is the best at what he does and and you know I just want to kind of you give us give the audience a little uh, little bit of you know email website where someone can look you up where they can get in touch with you if they want to contact you or use your services yeah so so I'm a I'm a surgeon uh, I'm a cancer surgeon so most of my services are dedicated in, in the treatment of gastrointestinal cancers I hope nobody needs me for that uh, as a life coach I uh, haven't really done this other, other than having coached people who I've trained in my profession uh, my kids and my wife who doesn't listen to me but <laughs> but um, 
my website is gesalter.com, G-E-C-E-L-T-E-R.com. Uh, there's some interesting stuff about patient safety on that, and, uh, and you can look at that. I have a Twitter account, which is Gary G, so it's at Gary G. I think Gary G M D. I can't remember. I'd have to look that up. You can check on that. <laughs> um, and my email account is gigasalter at gmail.com. Um, but looking forward to having more of the same. I think that when we sit around and we talk in this in, in this way, we kind of uh, pollinate ideas and, and then it's inspirational. I suppose that's what this is all about. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it's a whole mission. Yeah. 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 I think, you know, the whole the helix and gene we haven't spoken about the genetics of yeah, health and exercise. Yeah. We'll get to that. Yeah, yeah, but but uh, I think this is a fantastic platform. I no. think that it's a great foundation that we started. And one other thing uh, that that I do know is that uh, doctors who are sincere about their patients' health are transparent to their patients, and when they recommend certain things uh, to their patients because they believe in it it's an enormously impactful and powerful relationship. Yeah. And, and I know that having had a more than 20 year relationship with you and, and what you do and how you do things, that, that I can motivate people to come to you and we've already shown that with yeah. a couple of people. Sure. And I think that we should be able to evangelize that idea to other good doctors who really want to do what's right for their patients. I, I wholeheartedly agree and I think this is a good movement for us that we're starting and you know really you know and, and and we welcome all doctors fitness and nutrition professionals who are listening to this functional medicine practitioners you know anybody the holistic practitioners ayurveda doctors i mean we you know it's an open spectrum you know in, in the exactly. sense that you know we welcome anybody who you know wants to join this movement of truly you know uh teaching the person how to fish instead of fishing for them and you know that's kind of the value of, of of wellness that we really look at here and we want to implement so doc i uh i thank you so much for coming today and uh, this this was fantastic i i know our viewers uh if you guys have any questions um you can email me at sam at helixandgene.com uh you can go to uh helixandgene.com look us up and uh, any questions or concerns or anything you may have, you can reach out to us, John, our social media. Sure. You want to tell us. Instagram what? page, you know, at Helix and Gene. Um, yeah, just, just drop us a line if you have any questions or anything. Uh, but we're going to have a lot more podcasts to come. But again, as Sam was saying, we want this to be an open forum, an open space for people to share ideas. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of questions that need to be answered and a lot of uh, conversations like this that have to be had. And I think it's it's an it's a great uh, space for people to come, uh, like you said, and we welcome anyone to to come share their ideas. Excellent. Uh, I I would actually enjoy having an opportunity where people who call in uh, and answer their questions. Yeah, and, so, and and we would love to eventually get ourselves to that point where right. you know we actually have you know live questions you know right. via the internet. We'll or, get that going. You know, yeah. calling in. Yeah, I think that's that's fantastic and. and would love to get more and more involved and engaged in that because like you said it's all about transparency and exactly. uh, you know that's what we do here so fantastic doc thank you pleasure thanks thank for you. coming and uh look forward to seeing you again perfect Take care.